Hello and welcome to LawPod. I'm Anya McKenna, a second year undergraduate law student, and today I'm joined by one of our very own professors here at Queen's University Belfast School of Law, Professor Aoife O'Donoghue. Today we will gain an overview of Aoife's journey throughout her legal career, touching on her pathway into the legal sphere, then delving into the focus of her research and learning more about her role throughout her many legal projects with the backbone of feminism. Aoife, welcome and thank you for joining us at LawPod. Thank you for inviting me. I'm (laughs) delighted to be here. So Aoife, today we are going to interrogate you firstly about your route into law. Our first question is, what was your attraction towards studying law initially? So I remember being maybe 14, 15 and thinking I wanted to maybe do journalism or law. And I actually had a chat with my business studies teacher who was leaving the school and I left the school too, actually, who was a nun. In fact, my business studies teacher, Sister Teresa, who's from Northern Ireland. And she said, oh, do law. You should do law. You'd be very good at law. And so that kind of stuck with me. I then thought I would be a diplomat. So I never really intended to practice law. I was never really interested in practicing law, which, I mean, that's not unusual. Less than half law student, law graduates do, you know, practice. So I never, never thought I would do that. Um, but I thought I'd be, I would be a diplomat. So I did a lot of the kind of international law subjects in my undergraduate in international human rights, public international law. And I also did a year abroad, so I studied in St. Louis uh, in America um, as part of my undergraduate for a year, which was a really uh, interesting experience because it's a postgraduate there and we were undergraduates. So they thought myself and the the other guy were like geniuses. We're like, no, there's a whole class of 150 people at home, just the same. So that was really interesting because I got to do sort of subjects that I wouldn't have done necessarily like American legal history or epistemologies of law, things like that. So when I finished my law degree, I, I still intended to be a, a diplomat. People who know me probably think that's quite hilarious. <laughs> I thought I'd do a master's in international law. I thought that would be the next sort of logical step. So I uh, went to, to City University in London. At the time, they were running a, a specific international law master's, which brought in people from all over the UK and Europe to teach on the programme. So I had a great year in London. I then went back to Cork and I was like, well, I, I was waiting to do the civil service exams, actually, because that's how you become a diplomat. Um, and I think, it w- I think it's really important about representation here mm. and role modelling is that a few of my <laughs> friends started getting academic jobs or started doing PhDs. So it kind of became a real thing that people actually did um, because I hadn't really considered it before. So a few friends had started sort of tentatively doing PhDs and teaching. And a job came up in Galway teaching contract and equity. And it was starting in January and I, I went up and I did the interview. And amazingly, I got it. <laughs> and then I, I kind of never looked back really after that. I really liked it and enjoyed it. And it sort of, it was like, you know, first year teaching and third year teaching and big classes and small classes and all the different ways. And I kind of discovered actually I liked it and that maybe this might be... <laughs> kind of the, the job for me. And more and more of my friends also became academics, kind of a very unusual year group at UCC, uh, University College Cork, where I did my undergrad. There's several people like all in my year uh, above, behind, who were all academics. So we're kind of known as the UCC mafia. But in ways that was really important because there's a lot of role models and people to look at 
who are doing things and experiencing things at your level and that you can have a chat with. Um, so that's been really important. I was in Galway for a while and then I went to Durham um, uh, in, in the northeast of England. And I actually started my PhD at the same time as I started working in Durham, which is unusual. Yeah. That's not a typical <laughs> way to do it. Um, so I did it externally at the University of Groningen um, in the Netherlands and I went back and forth and that sort of carried on from there. So you didn't really have like clear career aspirations that changed throughout. We are the student focus group. So we're just wondering what would your advice be to law students who are unsure of what route to follow after a law degree? Because it's clear you took quite an unconventional path. I think to think about what your, like what bit of law are you actually interested in? Like for me, and I think this probably crosses my research as well, I'm really interested in the way that law structures society in lots of different ways, like whether that's here in Northern Ireland or it's internationally, like how law can be used to, to kind of make people do things or stop people do things. That's the bit that interests me. And with international law, like how that happens at an international, like how states do that, yeah. how, why is it states and not something else? You know, how come we have loads of states? Those kinds of questions. Yeah. That's what interested me. And really, you can't do that in, in practice. And I realized I probably couldn't do it as a diplomat either, mm. even though both of them would be really interesting jobs. So I think in lots of ways, it's important to think about, like, what is it that actually you're interested in? Is it solving people's individual problems? And then practicing and being a solicitor is probably a really good option. But then thinking about, you know, what area of the law? You know, is it private law? Is it uh, sort of like, do you really like nitty gritty doctrinal reading the cases and all the statutes? Or do you like thinking about big concepts? And if it's big concepts, maybe it's academia or kind of a policy job. Or would you, would you like to run the state? Like, is it a civil service? There's very few jobs where being maybe a physicist, uh, having a law degree doesn't help with. <laughs> but there's sort of very few kind of jobs in society more generally that actually having a law degree um, you know, does help with. And I will say there's no, you know, subject I did in my undergrad that I haven't used in some way. I don't research company law, for instance, but knowing what a company is helps me think about what a state is because they're made, two of them are made up by the law. We imagined up a state, we imagined up a company. So even though company law isn't something I'm passionate about enough to do research, all those subjects I did in my undergrad are actually really useful in different ways. So next, we're going to move on to your research. Now, as you've just said again, you have moved around a lot, America, Netherlands, Durham, all over the place. Have you found that geography affects the research that you're producing and how so? I think it has probably in lots of different ways. Thinking about Brexit, for instance, so I did a lot of work on Brexit, but specifically about Northern Ireland, right? Because Brexit is huge. Yes. But I looked specifically in Northern Ireland and probably the geography of not being in Northern Ireland and being in England. I'm finding it so frustrating, especially at the very beginning, when nobody would listen, uh, when we kept pointing out in, in the group I was working with, that this is going to be a massive issue. You, you have to think about Northern Ireland. You can't ignore it. And I think in some ways, the frustration I had was really intense because I was having to persuade people all the time because I was in England. If you were having that conversation in Northern Ireland, people would go, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Um, and I think that was really important, whereas I think in international law and especially the feminist international law, my own geography is really important in that 
realizing that there's some contexts that I I just don't understand and don't have a concept of. You know, I'm a, a, a white woman from the global north. I have to be aware that I can't talk for all women. I don't understand what it's like to be, and not in a negative way, to understand what it's like to be uh, a, a woman in the global south, but be aware of that geography and aware of the history that goes along with it. And even as an academic in practice, you know, it's very easy for me with a European passport to go to a conference anywhere in the world. Right? It's very straightforward. I can get a visa very easily. But if you're running a project, having an awareness of if I'm going to do this research project and I'm going to involve people from other parts of the world, actually, that's not a given. That's not easy for them. Getting a visa can take months and they might not get it. So I think in, in the geography, I think, impacts it in, in different ways. And I think it's interesting coming from the Northeast, where I was for quite a long time um, and loved it. Uh, northeast of England. I keep forgetting that I'm also in the Northeast yeah. here. Um, so I've moved from one Northeast to another Northeast, but yeah. in the Northeast of England. People within the geography of Britain think it's very far away from everything else. So people would say, people from London would say, oh, I'd like to come up to your thing, but, you know, if it was in Edinburgh, and I'd be like, well, Edinburgh is actually further away on the train. And what's interesting coming to live in Belfast, because I'd never lived in Belfast before, is because it's a, a devolved capital, there's a lot going on, right? I mean, obviously, Stormont isn't operational at the moment, which is dating this interview. There's courts, there's a high court, that there's, you know, a lot of things in Belfast because it's a, a devolved capital that I didn't actually have access to in Newcastle and Durham. So even the judiciary, I've seen far more of the judiciary here than I ever saw in Durham. Like it was a real special occasion when they came up. Um, whereas, you know, lo it's lovely in Queens, you know, members of the judiciary come all the time. So yeah, absolutely. There is a, I think geography really impacts on sort of not only the content, but also how you go about it. With your research interests stemming from international law to legal tyranny, feminist legal history, how do you choose these very varied range of research topics? It's probably various different things influence. Sometimes I get angry at things. So I find things really annoying or frustrating, especially if they are things that I think are really obvious that nobody else is taking any notice of. And that can be something very esoteric. But so that sometimes is a kind of a, a reason for doing, doing a thing. I would also say I am a person who loves a top fact. So if I find out a random top fact about something, that can lead me to, to find out more and go, oh, actually, I'd like, you know, actually I should write out. I should write about this. I should find out more about this. So tyranny and the work in tyranny actually came out of, um, which it came out of my PhD, which was my first book, my first monograph. And, and that was on constitutionalism and international law. As I was doing that project, I was trying to figure out why international lawyers started using constitutional language, because that was new. Why, when you have a whole set of language and a vocabulary and a way, and it's, you know, a horizontal order, and it's like, why do we want to say there's a rule of law when there isn't? Why do we want to find a separation of powers? Like, what is that? That idea was kind of percolating for a long time, and I was in a, a Hannah Arendt reading group. Um, with some political geographers uh, at Durham and we were reading, she, she talks about tyranny quite a bit and it struck me, I was like, oh, is that it? Because if you're not a constitutional order in the modern world, in the contemporary world, if you're not a constitutional order, what are you? 
And it kind of struck me because that's the way the Enlightenment worked, right? So if you look at the American War of Independence, the Declaration of Independence, right, it talks about the tyranny of, you know, George III. Um, and if you look across that sort of move around the 16th, 17th century to constitutionalism was in opposition to tyranny. It was, we're not a tyranny. Look at us, we have a constitution. I was like, oh, is that what it is in international law? Because they're like, well, if we're not a constitution, what are we? And I would argue lots of it actually are tyrannical, which doesn't make me very popular in international law circles. That was something that was there for a long time. And I was kind of searching for a way to get to start to think about it. And just at this reading group, which wasn't the intention, I just wanted to get to know Anna Arendt. And there was a reading group set up and I went, oh, this is a good opportunity. I'll go sit in on this. And that's where that, that came from. Other, other, a lot of things are, are the angry one, though, or the top fact one. But, they, <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the tyranny book has a kind of more academic answer. So, you know, <laughs> that one. Do you have a favourite? Now, I know they're very hard topics to talk about, but do you have kind of a favourite topic almost acting as your baby for law? I'd say it probably changes. I sometimes describe it as as kind of precursor questions. And it's kind of okay. like being, uh, you know, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, which I have at home, which is like, why? So where things are taken yeah. for granted that we just automatically do it, I want to know why. Because if you ask why, it can kind of reveal the politics of doing it. And I think, you know, this is, you know, there's people of different views in this, but I, I think Law is deeply political, and I think it should be political. Law should be created through politics. That's why we elect politicians, partly, is to, to make laws. So I think it's good that law is political. So, you know, why do we have a state? For 2,000 years, there were none. We had empires and kingdoms and cities. City, and we use the word state in the contemporary era, but that wasn't what they were called. We had confederations, we had, and now we just have states. Why? So I would say probably it's not a topic per se, but it's probably the thing that drives a huge amount of the research is, is me kind of going, why? <laughs> like a, like a four-year-old. And then how did the opportunity for co-authorship in bordering two unions, Northern Ireland and the Brexit, come about? That started off as prior to Brexit at all. So prior to the referendum, um, myself and uh, Ben Warwick, who's now at Nottingham, but was a PhD student at the time in Durham. Um, we were kind of, it was actually more about reform of the Human Rights Act. And it was getting very frustrating because, again, nobody was talking about Northern Ireland. They were like, well, actually, you can't get rid of the Human Rights Act without discussing Northern Ireland. And because Ben is from um, Northern Ireland. And we, we wrote a relatively short piece, actually, in the Northern, for Northern Ireland Legal Quarterly um, about it. And then when the Brexit referendum came about, Myself and Ben were like, well, we should probably continue doing this. And then we brought Colin Murray, who is at Newcastle University, on board. And he's a public lawyer, constitutional lawyer, does a lot on democracy, um, also from Northern Ireland. Um, and then Sylvia de Mars, who is an EU lawyer at Newcastle, and she does EU law and some trade law. And she's Dutch, but actually I met her at the weekend and she said somebody, she uses the phrase grand soul. And so he said to her, a classic, you hang around with Irish people a lot. She's like, I do, I do. Um, so she, she now knows, at least she might be Dutch, but she knows a lot about uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland. So we kind of, as a group, thought we could come together and do stuff on Northern Ireland because we could cover all the angles. So Ben is a, a kind of human rights lawyer, more specifically, and an international lawyer. Colin is a public law and a public lawyer, knows a lot about devolution, knew a lot about the constitutional structure in Northern Ireland. 
Uh, I'm coming from the Republic, so while I don't do a lot of Irish constitutional law, I'm, I'm very familiar with it. And all the international law, bits of it, like the 1998 agreement. And then Sylvia as the EU lawyer and trade lawyer, and I do some trade as well. So we kind of thought as a group, we could cover the different angles because that was one of the most unwieldy things about Brexit was that and is means there's even in Northern Ireland, right? You have to think of the human rights stuff. You also have to think of the trade stuff. You have to think of everything. Um, so you need a group. So we then started working. We were lucky enough to get some funding um, to continue on the work. And as part of that, we thought, let's write a book. Let's put a book together. And so we all wrote chapters um, and then kind of read each other's chapters to try to make it sound like it was similar. If you know that, like, if you know it's me, you know the bit I wrote, etc. Okay. <laughs> if you know people, if you're familiar with their work, you can always tell who writes what bits. Um, and the introduction and inclusion. We spent a lot of time looking for the front cover. Um, Judging the book. Yeah, because <laughs> that's important. You're selling. Yes. You're selling. And, and we also wanted it to be accessible because we wanted it to be read by the people who were ignoring Northern Ireland. And to go, it's a problem for, for these reasons. So, yeah, because the four person in law, I mean, and other, uh, other subjects like science, et cetera, it's very used to, you could have like 10, 12, 13 authors, right? That's quite common. Um, in law, that's unusual. Most people actually do write on their own. I, I'm quite unusual in the amount of co-authorship I do. But that project necessitated people with different kinds of expertise. Like you, you needed people who knew different bits of the law and understood how they intersected. Or like that book and that whole project wouldn't have worked. So that was one of the projects you've been a part of. Now you have been a part of many. The list can go on. But um, we're kind of focusing on the feminist projects that you've been a part of mainly. So what was your experience as part of the interesting Northern slash Ireland Feminist Judgments Project? So it was fantastic. It's one of the best projects I've been involved in. We had so much fun doing those projects. And it was it was interesting in that we were all quite junior leading it. So at the time, there weren't that there were now lots of really great feminist project feminist judgments projects around the world. But at the time, there actually weren't that many. There was the original Canadian, um, the English project was just done, um, and then we just kind of I think probably the confidence of youth. We just said, oh, let's, let's let's do it. Um, so it was me and Marie Denright and Julie McCandless, um, and we knew we wanted to do it all island. Um, and I think we're still the only project that's done cross jurisdictions. And we're very aware of the diaspora in the project as well, because there's so many Irish academics all over the world and across Britain and Ireland. Like just, you know, I think like we're the second biggest group after the Greeks. We're everywhere. But we really wanted it to be all island, but also diasporatic, because at the time, the three of us leading the project were all based in England. Yes. So none of us were based on the island. And that meant partnering up with people, people here in, in Queens, um, people at Ulster, in Cork and, and in Dublin. And it was probably my first proper experience of having like a feminist space, like a feminist academic legal space where it was just lovely. Like there was no, like even though like, there was, you know, great discussions and in-depth discussions, because obviously there's lots of different approaches to feminism and lots of ways you could have written the judgments. but it was always in that in a really supportive, so direct and frank sometimes, but just oh, kind of was there was nobody showing off and nobody trying to dominate and nobody sort of like kind of academic. It's kind of hard to describe because you, when you get into an academic space and they all tend to be very different, like the subject you're in can vary it, and whether it's international or domestic can vary it. But um, like that was really wonderful. And actually, the very first one was in Ulster, but Catherine Catherine Rourke hosted us and. 
it set a really lovely tone for the project. And then the next one was in, in Queens. And I think they set up a really nice kind of collective, almost kind of idealistic version uh, of what it is to do a feminist project. I mean, it was a lot of hard work because we had a lot of judgments. We had nearly 90 authors because everybody, there were, you had a judgment and then you had a commentator on the judgment and sometimes two people wrote the judgments. And that bit of academic work takes a lot of time editing and bringing a bit together and arranging dates, even arranging the teas and coffees. So uh, Declan here is fantastic uh, supporting, supporting you if you're trying to do that kind of thing here. Like it was, it was busy and there was a lot, but it was tremendous fun. And it's probably one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of, actually, as, as a project. Um, and actually, probably the thing most people talk to me about when I go somewhere, which is nice. Um, but it was great. Yeah, I, had a, I, I loved doing that. I mean, we were very junior, actually, putting it together. But I think many ways that helped us because we were willing to take risks that if you were a bit more long in the tooth, you might know, oh, I won't do that because oh, I know what will happen there. Whereas we were a bit more like... Sure, we'll try it and see how it goes. Brilliant. So then your experience acting as a feminist judge for the case of um, McGimsey in Ireland, this was paramount. And how did this come about? As an, as an international lawyer, it was interesting to try to pick a judgment um, in a domestic setting. And so there are various, there's sort of in the Republic, there's kind of a few famous ones about referendums, which I was thinking, oh, I could. I could do those ones, you know, they're about EU law and the referendum. I was like, I'm not really an EU scholar, though. And I don't know. It struck me, uh, kind of thinking back, and I think it was Marie Dunright actually said to me, what about McDimsey? And what is interesting to me about McDimsey was, you know, it's about two men, but, you know, they're two politicians, the Ulster Unionist Party. And it's about the Anglo-Irish Agreement in 1985. So it's not very obviously something you would do a feminist take on. And you're like, where's the feminist angle? But then I read it, and what really struck me when I read it was they made a big deal about making them citizens of the Republic in order to take the case. Now, they didn't actually have to, so there's a whole load of things going on there. But they made a big deal of figuring out how they were citizens of the Republic. Now, for one of the brothers, it was very easy because he'd taken a passport. So that's kind of a, like, hands up, okay, I have a passport. The other brother, though, it was all about his public life and how he was publicly active and a important member of his community, all of which is true. So it's not, it's not suggesting that the man wasn't or anything, but that he, it, they really had to build him up this public citizen, this public active citizen. And it occurred to me that if it was a housewife from Northern Ireland who didn't work, who, um, who worked, obviously, it's not that they you know, didn't work outside the home. Obviously, the, you know, people work and work very hard. Um, that ha she wouldn't have been able to to demonstrate that she was that she was a citizen, that she any of the things they talked about, if you were a woman living in the home, a homemaker, etc., that was not possible. And it's I was like, that's my that's my take. And it was important for the project as well to take cases that weren't obvious to demonstrate that you can do a feminist analysis of anything. And I think, and the the McJimsies themselves, um, they're they're two very fascinating men. And one of them studied in uh, in Trinity, um, and they knew the judge um, in the High Court case because they were all in the um, Irish Historical Society and stuff together. So I found out really lots of very interesting things about them, and, and I sent them the judgment. Um, it didn't go their way even with me, so I never heard back from them. But like it was, and, it, it, and also it was one that was all island, and that was important as well from, from the project's perspective. 
but yeah, so it's yeah, because it's not the it's not an obvious one, right? It's not one of sort of the obvious feminist issues. Um, but once I looked at it, I was like, oh, oh, actually, this is actually a test for not even half the population, right? It's a test for how politicians demonstrate their citizens, not not ordinary. Like if you were a working class man, I'm not sure you would have been able to demonstrate it either, you know. So um, yeah, so it was McJimsey. And then um, the importance of your role, you were co-director of the Northern Slash Ireland Feminist Constitutions Project, another major thing. (laughs) How did this come about? So in some ways, it's a kind of a natural follow on from the Feminist Judgments Project to the extent that during the Feminist Judgments Project, we were very, the methodology is very strict. So you have to follow the precedent at the time. You can't change the facts. You can't change the law. It's very, very specific methodology, which is excellent because it's for a specific point that you want to make. Um, Whereas when you're talking about constitution writing, there's a lot more freedom. There isn't rules about what has to be in a constitution. There are are no rules about what has to go in a constitution and what doesn't have to be constitution, how they're written. And often, once you start looking at it, they can be written in very odd ways by a random group of people. So uh, Dawn Coffey and Maynooth, who's a a legal historian, very recently put up on uh, social media that one of the people who wrote the 1922 Constitution had failed basically all their exams in their final year in UCC, which I was like, 10 years later, they're writing constitution as this hope for us all. Um, that it was sort of, from, so there was, there was that as a kind of, well, we'd have a lot more freedom. Um, I was also um, doing some work on, and still doing work on feminist utopias with Ruth Houghton, and that is about how you build a feminist society. Like, what, what are the structures you put in? Like, what, how do you go about it? Um, what things work? So one of the things that come out of sort of 1970s critical feminist utopia science fiction is that you don't create end state or blueprint. Right? So you don't write a document that this is now and forever, this is how we're going to go. Yes. So that was really interesting when I said, well, well, how would you do that in a constitution? Like, how would you, how would you not have this is, because if you think about, const- like say the US constitution, that's very, like that's an old, old, it's one of the, uh, like the Irish constitution 1937 yeah. is one of the oldest constitutions in the world. So the American one is, like incredibly old, but it's calcified, right? It it was written for a different time in a different period. It's really difficult to change. The US Constitution is really, really difficult. It has been done, you know, there's all those amendments that we talk about, but it's very difficult. Um, so it was kind of like, oh, how would we do it? How would we do it? Then how would we collectively do it? Like, should you know, how do we all sit down and do it collectively? Who do we bring in? So we work a lot with, um, with Joanna McMinn, who's fantastic, um, and she facilitates workshops with uh, civil society groups with, with women, so everybody from rural women to refugee and m- migrant women and sitting down and, you know, what would they like to see in it? You know, writing a manifesto, putting it all together. Part of it also, though, was uh, Brexit and the voices that got heard in writing that, the voices who were heard in writing the 1998 agreement, you know, where were the women? Monica Macmillan, like, but, you know, they did get stuff in. Um, really important stuff in, but, but I would say they probably would say not enough. Um, you know, where are the women, like, if we're going to have this, if we're, especially and in the project, we're very clear that we're talking about feminist futures, no matter sort of, we're not taking the Westphalian idea that it has to be one of two options, even though that's what, say, the 1998 agreement says, it's either United Ireland or continuation of Northern Ireland. It is, we're like, well, well actually that bit doesn't matter to us. Yeah. Um, how, you know, 
that would as a feminist idea, how would you co co create the constitutions together? You know, how could you have two different constitutions aligning with each other that are equally feminist and feeding into each other in a in a positive way? And we felt that those discussions were happening and they are happening. But you know, I, I I'm you know, whatever vote ever comes up in 10, 20, 40, 100 years time, I'm not voting for anything that's not a feminist socialist utopia. So, but we wanted those discussions to be had. And we like working with the civil society groups is an important part of giving people confidence that anyone can write a constitution, right? Anyone can, anyone has. Often people who are very young. So I've done this in my classes and people are like, one of the reasons they think they can't is because we're young. And you're like, actually, who writes constitutions? Often it's after revolutions. What age are the revolutionaries? They're often quite young. It's like, there's, there's no reason young people can't do them. There's no reason old people can't do them. There's a, like that giving people the confidence that they, they can and should be involved in shaping whatever the future is, um, whatever kinds of questions come up, whatever, you know, if they're talking about changing um, the structure in Stormont so that, you know, we don't have a government for whatever length of time this current um, intermission goes on for, you know, that that's actually, you should think about that as well, that women should be involved in that conversation. And so, so it was important for us to sort of go, actually, there's a whole group here on the island who have been excluded from those conversations forever. And now, if you're having those, any of those kinds of conversations, we're, you know, we are here and we, we will make ourselves heard, even if you don't want to hear us. Well, I'll be the next one now to write a constitution. So, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that actually leads on really nicely just to the final question of Aoife. What does the future hold for your research, just for you in general, your career, your research, all that? Uh, so I've been in Queens now about a year and a half. So I'm kind of settled in now. It's always moving because I was in another institution in Durham for so long. Yes. You know, it takes a while to settle in just to know who to email when you want something done or you need to find some information of those things. I didn't have Canvas in my old, uh, old university we had Blackboard, so even you know, that kind of thing took a bit of time to get used to. So I'm kind of more settled now. I'm currently uh, looking at feminist tyrannicide because when I was doing the tyranny work, gender kept coming up, but nobody was looking at it specifically. So kind of feminist and queer ideas of, of tyrannicide and sort of gender tyranny. So that'll probably take me another two, three, four years because there's a lot to do. Um, with the Feminist Constitutions Project, we're kind of moving into a second phase now, because um, we've been running a lot of workshops and we have draft manifestos and that I think we're kind of moving into kind of the second phase of being probably more academic, actually, uh, in the next next while on on that. And to be frank, Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving. If you're an academic lawyer, it just never stops. Uh, sometimes I wish it would stop, uh, but it never stops. So I'd imagine that's going to keep going. Um I'm also doing a lot of the moment of looking at um, how international economic laws, so World Bank, IMF, so not private stuff, public stuff, and sort of looking at democratic trends versus anti-democratic trends. So things like charter cities, where you have to pay for shareholder citizenship and how that's now being transferred into space. So like Elon Musk talks about going to Mars, but like who's working on the ship and do they have any labor rights? Probably his intention is that they don't because they're outside of any jurisdiction. Um, so kind of thinking through kind of, because that's not, that sort of charter thing, if you think of like the Dutch East India Company or things like that, or even the city of London, I mean, like that, those kind of special economic zones where if you have more money, you get bigger vote. And actually that 
unusual, actually, in history. We've just kind of forgotten about them when we created all this day. Um, so that's, at the moment, I've, I've done one piece on that, but it was very kind of just setting the groundwork. So I think that's probably something, because um, when I say space, everyone goes, just like, it's, think of last year was a $490 billion industry. So it's not sort of science fiction anymore. It's very real. And um, I think it needs to, need to think about it a bit more. But if you ask me in 12 months, I'll probably be doing something completely different again. <laughs> that's just how I roll. <laughs> well, Aoife, it was a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us on LawPod and I'm sure we will see you again soon. And thank you, Anya. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.